Alright guys, welcome to Mixed Martial Awesome. Today will be another short episode. Last week, or last episode, went over the BJ Penn card, all that good stuff, and we didn't get to preview the Bellator card between uh, Ortiz and Sonnen. I actually didn't get to watch that card. I haven't missed a UFC fight in 12 years, but uh, I wasn't able to watch uh, the Bellator fight, but I've heard about what happened and I've said on the show that there was a realistic chance that Sonnen was going to lose right because I mean I think you know Ortiz uh you know he had a losing streak and all this other stuff but I thought I I still think Ortiz is actually a, a relatively decent fighter even though he's way past his prime now but just the way that he's built and stuff he's not an easy guy to finish, I mean, he got, uh, you know, body shots by Rashad and, and Noguera, but the thing with Sonnen is I honestly don't think he is 100% legit. And I hate to say that because I like Chael Sonnen a lot. I, I really, like, buy into the stories and stuff uh, in his pre-fight um, interviews and everything else, and I like him a lot. And uh, he does have a reputation for being the guy that comes up short for the big fights, all the way back to when he was in college and all this other stuff. So maybe he's got a little bit of that crow cop curse, which I can't even call a crow cop curse anymore because crow cop is is winning just fine. But there's there's some shadiness to it. All like. The biggest one for me, like the the first Anderson Silva fight, I didn't think was a fixed fight or anything. Although in hindsight, maybe you could argue that it was. Um, the Bisbing fight, he won a decision that he had no business winning a decision for. So I don't know what that was about. And that set up Anderson Silva too, which is another fight that I don't think was fixed, but is weird the way that it ended but I didn't think that was fixed at all uh the big one for me was when he fought Rashad Evans there's no reason Chael Sonnen should have gone out there and got destroyed by Rashad the way that he did and this was when Rashad was on kind of a losing streak and things weren't looking so good and they were both friends and it I mean I hate to be that guy that throws it out there but it legitimately looked like he did his friend a favor took a fight against a friend and took a dive where neither guy really got hurt and I don't think Chael Sonnen really cares if he wins or loses which is another really stupid thing to say but he is one of these guys that buys into the promotion and and I don't even want to really get into the whole WWE aspect of it, but there is something to it. Like there's, there is no real reason why Sonnen should have lost to Rashad the way that he did. I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me. So then going into this fight with Tito Ortiz and it's going to be Tito, Tito's last fight and Tito hasn't been looking good. His reputation is kind of like this, that, and the other. And I can't help but think that Sonnen is kind of one of these guys that wants to, like, you know, keep the legend intact and and 
pay it up to the guy who paved the way for him and all this other kind of silly stuff, to be honest. And really, I mean, Sonnen fighting at 205 isn't that big of a deal, especially because he did get pretty big during his layoff, but he didn't really even have to cut weight for this fight, and he really should be fighting at 185. So he's fighting Tito Ortiz when he doesn't really have to. Other than that, it's a marquee fight, and he's going to fight Vanderlei Silva, which I also imagine is probably going to be at 205. And that fight, I think Sonnen will legitimately try to beat Anderson, uh, beat Vanderlei Silva. But there's something about this Tito Ortiz fight that I got, man, I just feel like Sonnen is going to lay down for Ortiz and let Ortiz go out with a win and all this other stuff. And it seemed so much like that's what was happening. And Tito had no idea because, I mean, Tito has that reputation of being kind of dumb. Uh, and I feel like it was Sonnen was doing all of this by himself. Tito had no idea and still has no idea that this is what happened. But I legitimately think that I was not surprised to find out that Tito Ortiz submits Chael Sonnen, which seems kind of silly. Um, maybe it was legit, but it, it's it's difficult because you can see in Sonnen's fights where he is a killer. I mean, the way that he destroyed Shogun was ridiculous. But you can see the way that he fights, where he's good and where he's not. And then you see him do something silly, like throw the spinning back fist against Anderson Silva, which is kind of suspect in hindsight, but people make mistakes all the time. You see the first finish where he gets caught in a triangle that's like, uh, you know, could it have happened? Again, in hindsight, it seems fishy, but I don't think it was fishy. I like to believe... I, I personally like the legendary story that may or may not be true that Anderson Silva only wanted to finish Chael Sonnen with his submission because he disrespected the Noguera brothers and would have lost, would have been willing to lose if he wasn't able to finish him with a submission and only found it at the very end of the fight. It makes for a very nice story. But the Rashad fight, to me, doesn't make any sense. And the Tito Ortiz fight also doesn't make any sense. Now, is it possible that Chael Sonnen just didn't show up on those fights? I guess. But it's hard to believe because you see him in these other fights. You you, you hear him talk about preparation and see his training and all these other things. You know where his skill sets are. You know that he's not a stupid fighter. He's not a low-level amateur fighter. He's very, 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 very good, not just in his skills, but in his approach to fights and his intelligence in the cage. And you could say, oh, well, he had the time off, and even he said he didn't get enough like minutes actually doing it, and he felt flat or whatever it is. But... It's annoying that there is this little bit of doubt. And this time, which is the first time, because I don't think anybody else really delved into it into any of those other fights. But this time, other people other than me actually questioned whether or not the fight was fixed. And I haven't bothered reading what Tito had to say about it because I don't think Tito is in on it. I didn't even bother reading what, what Chael had to say about it because I know that he'll kind of brush it off but leave a little bit of of suspicion in there because he thinks it's fun and it's a real problem because you can't have in mma you can't have 
fixed fights. The second that there's fixed fights, the whole thing like really falls apart and it gets really, really, really bad. Um, but something about Chael Sonnen just, man, sometimes I don't, I don't believe it. So that happened. Daniel Cormier and Rumble Johnson is rescheduled for 210. Finally going to happen. I hope it's happening. I think people, people don't give Cormier his respect. Sometimes I don't because I think he's too damn goofy. He did the commentary for the, the BJ card in Phoenix and he is, I don't like him as a commentator. He's okay behind the desk, but man, he is so goofy. It's hard to take him serious as a fighter. Then you watch him fight and he's one of my favorites, but when he's not fighting and he doesn't fight often, unfortunately, he's so goofy. It's just, it's just silly, but people forget the first time that he fought Anthony Johnson he traded with him a little bit, and he, I mean, he didn't destroy him on the feet, but he did eventually destroy him. He submitted the guy. People forget that he has a win over Rumble already. People are acting like this is the first time that they fought. It's not. Cormier beat him handedly, uh, and people also seem to forget that when he fought Anderson Silva, he stood and traded with Anderson Silva, which is something that nobody who fights Anderson Silva ever really wants to do. Bisbing did it slightly. He did it more intelligently, keeping range and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, Weidman wasn't afraid to stand toe-to-toe with him. But for the most part, nobody really wants to stand and trade with Anderson Silva. Everybody knows that that's dangerous. And Cormier did it in a fight that he didn't really have to do it in. He was killing him... Just taking him down. It was way easy. He's much bigger than Anderson Silva. His title wasn't on the line. He could have just very easily just played it safe. But he stood and traded with Anderson Silva. And it seemed like nobody noticed. And he's talking about that he's going to stand and trade with Anthony Johnson in this upcoming fight. And I believe him because I've seen him do it before. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But the dude hasn't lost to anyone except jones and he stood with jones and didn't get finished so uh i like cormier a lot i like him when he's the fighter and i'm looking forward to seeing him in rumble fight garbrandt and dillashaw got picked as coaches for the ultimate fighter which is very interesting for a bunch of reasons but i'll tell you right now that i don't like it so it's super interesting because especially now that they've released, you know, who's going to be the coaching staff is you're going to have TJ and Garbrandt who are former teammates coaching opposite of one another who don't like each other now. And there's going to be all sorts of screaming and cursing and drama and all that's great. But in Garbrandt's corner, you're going to have Uriah Faber, who's TJ's old coach. And in TJ's corner, you're going to have Dwayne Ludwig, who's TJ's coach now and there's a feud there in some capacity between Faber and Dwayne Ludwig there's a feud in some capacity between TJ and Faber it's going to be very interesting to see if Joseph Benavides or Chad Mendez or Danny Castillo ever pop up uh, over the course of the Ultimate Fighter because the three of them kind of train with both from time to time 
So even though Faber's retired, we might still get to see a little bit of him and TJ. We might get to see a little bit of him and Dwayne Ludwig, which is should play out very interesting. It's it's going to be more interesting in terms of what really happens versus what they edit for TV. Um, so in that aspect, I like this a lot because it's going to be very interesting. We don't get to see Faber and TJ fight, supposedly. I still keep my fingers crossed that that fight happens anyway. Uh, but all that's great. The thing that I don't like about it is that uh, I don't even think they're... They, they might just recently started filming. Maybe. It doesn't air on television until April. It's January. They're filming now. It doesn't air until April. It's going to be like a six or eight week show. I forget how many it is, how many how many weeks it takes to air on TV. Because sometimes they skip a week, sometimes they do two episodes, or they do two fights in the same episode. So I forget exactly how it breaks down, but it's going to be like at least six weeks. And they're not going to fight in the finale, they're going to fight in the pay-per-view, which means that they might not fight until July, which is a long time. Both guys are fresh and healthy from their fights uh, at, at 207 in December, but they're going to sit out for six months. That's a long time. That's a lo- that's, that's opportunity for someone to get hurt. That means that Dominic Cruz may fight Lineker or somebody beforehand, or he may just sit out six months and wait and see what happens. Or if somebody gets hurt, he might have to jump in against one of them. I don't think anybody would mind him fighting either one of them again. But uh, it's I don't like that it's a layoff because you have a new champion who should be getting a lot of press and stuff right now. And instead, he's going to kind of be on the shelf for a little bit. Granted, he'll get television time because Ultimate Fighter, and that's great. But that doesn't start until April. You have TJ, who's on a win streak. He's number one contender. And even him, I think, by the time July comes around, people forget everything that's happened. Six months is a long time. People are crying about fighters being out a year. Half a year is, is just as... Uh, just enough time for for the fire to cool off uh, on a lot of the hype and stuff behind these guys. So we'll see what happens, especially lower weight class. Like they definitely need as much promotion as possible. But either way, it should make for interesting TV. The the show is built around former Ultimate Fighter contestants that didn't quite make it. There's a lot of people on there that. Uh, I don't know, they're like way past their prime. I didn't even know they were still fighting or they haven't fought in years and they're coming back just to see if they can do it on the show. And I don't I don't really understand what the point is. You know, Joe Stevenson and Junie Browning are both on there. And uh, I forgot the other guy who's, who's like a legacy champion now. Like, if they win, what are they going to do? Are they going to... They're going to keep fighting in the UFC for how long? Are they going to become, they're not going to become champions. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't see what the, the long, long, long-term aspirations are for some of these guys. I think there's, yeah, it's just, it's kind of weird. Ultimate Fighter is weird. All right, so let's get into UFC Denver. We're only going to talk about six fights. I'll tell you right now that this card is going to make for some great TV, though. It's a big Fox card. The matchups are all pretty exciting 
we're only going to talk about the, the top six, but uh, this is going to be a good card. I'm looking forward to this a lot. So the first fight we'll talk about is Rafael Asuncao, who's 23-5, and five, against Aljamain Sterling, who's 12-1. and one. Asuncao was on a six-fight win streak before losing to TJ, but he was also out two years before that. Two fights before that, he beat TJ. But um, uh, Sterling lost for the first time against Caraway, And it's kind of a hard fight to pick. Asuncao is way more experienced, has fought much tougher competition, has a win over Caraway. Not that MMA math really makes sense in that way. But Sterling is young, he's quick, he's pretty dynamic, and has a lot of tricks. His striking isn't that good, but he's got wrestling, he has jiu-jitsu, Asuncao has jiu-jitsu. Asuncao is also just, I think, physically stronger but I also think he's physically slower. This is a tough one to pick. Uh, I feel like conventional wisdom would say that a Sunsau should win because he was on a decent win streak. Losing to TJ Dillashaw by decision isn't that big of a deal, even though TJ fought that fight kind of weak, especially compared to the way that he fought Lineker. But Sterling was undefeated before losing to Caraway, and even... In the Caraway fight, he kind of crushed Caraway for the first round. Um, so the other side is to say go with the younger guy who's a little bit quicker and crafty and coming off of a loss sometimes means that you're going to get a second one, but a lot of times in the case of someone like Sterling, it's they usually just bounce right back and start winning again. So I kind of want to go with Sterling. It's just it's tough because, you know, Asuncao was was looking really good, and then he was out for two years, so it's it's fighting TJ Dillashaw after being out for two years is a tall order. Ask Dominic Cruz. Um, so I don't know if we're going to get like a refreshed, much better-looking Asuncao, or if maybe he just missed his window. This is a tough one for sure. Then we have Nate Marquardt, who's 35-16-2, against Sam Alvey, who's 29-8 and won no contest. Marquardt is 4-6 in his last 10 fights, but all six losses were to really good opponents. You could argue that he probably shouldn't have lost to Tiago Santos, except Tiago Santos is a knockout guy and Marquardt doesn't have the best chin. Uh, But his last four wins were all finishes, including one of the most devastating wins ever against Tyrone Woodley. Uh, it was a long time ago, but still. Alvy's on a three-fight win streak. Uh, I think this is a really, really big fight for Alvy. Um, I think skill-wise and experience should definitely mean that Marquardt should win. I don't think Alvy's going to be the easiest guy for him to get close to to take him down and submit him, but it's possible. It's also very possible that Alvi is just going to punch Marquardt and knock him out because, like I said, his chin isn't that great. So even this is kind of a tough fight, but I'm going to go with Marquardt because he's way more well-rounded and experienced and just technically better than Alvi, I think, everywhere. Alvi's just got, you know, he, he can throw a weird punch and it'll have a knockout on it, so... 
It's going to be interesting for sure, but I'm going to go with Marquardt. Alex Caceres, who's 12-9, and won no contest against Jason Knight. This should be uh, an interesting high-energy fight for sure. A really good fight. Caceres looked good since returning to featherweight. Uh, he lost a split decision to Yair Rodriguez, which should tell you something about Yair Rodriguez. I mean, he's got the huge hype train because he beat a 38-year-old BJ Penn who hadn't fought in a couple of years. But he lost a split decision to Alex Caceres. He got pretty roughed up in his win over Charles Rosa. I don't think Rodriguez is as good as the hype says, although I think he's good. Caceres, on the other hand, in that fight that he lost to Rodriguez, I actually thought looked really good. He looked really good against Cole Miller before that. Uh, so this is going to be an interesting one. I think Jason Knight's a, a very tough matchup just because he's a little bit crazy. But if Caceres is, is still feeling smooth, then I, I would definitely go with Caceres. Then we go to Andre Arlovsky. He's 25-13 and one no contest against Francis Naganu, who's 9-1. and Arlovsky's on a three-fight losing streak, but he was on a six-fight win streak. He's been on a losing streaks before and then bounces back. Naganu is super hyped up right now because the heavyweight division needs someone to talk about. Uh, all of Naganu's wins are finishes. Uh, Arlovsky is a huge jump in competition for Naganu. Um, huge jump because Naganu really hasn't faced anyone, uh, honestly, even remotely that good. But uh, Arlovsky's got a lot of skills. People forget that he has uh, good submissions, a lot of experience. I mean, this is a gigantic leap for Naganu. The problem is that Naganu is basically made out of stone, and Arlovsky's chin is not that good. Uh, so it's it's tough. I, I it seems like a no brainer that Naganu is going to punch Andre Arlovsky and knock him out because that's what Naganu does, and that's what's happened to Arlovsky a few times in the past. But at the same time. I would love for Arlovsky to win. I mean, I, I, I still really like Andre Arlovsky, even though he's probably past his prime. But God, I would love to see him... I mean, when he was on that six-fight win streak and getting close to a title shot, I was pretty hyped up. And then, you know, now he's on a three-fight losing streak. But I don't know. I mean, if he was to beat Naganu, that would be a really big deal. And... You know, I think I don't think it would be that big of a deal for Naganu to beat Arlovsky, other than he's a former champion, he's a legend, he's super experienced, all that kind of stuff. You can you can make that claim. It's it's I'm not gonna say that this is like a huge mismatch, you know, pairing the young dominant prospect against someone that's past their prime and just to just to get the prospect over. I don't think it's quite like that, but I could see it being that way for sure. So then the co-main event is Donald Cerrone, 32-7-1, against Jorge Masvidal, who's 31-11. Cerrone's on a four-fight win streak at welterweight. All of them are finishes. Both guys used to fight at lightweight. 
I think both guys probably still should fight at lightweight, especially Cerrone. I don't think Cerrone is a welterweight at all. I mean, he's winning and he's finishing people, but I don't think he's a welterweight. Masvidal's, even though Cerrone, I think, is taller, Masvidal's built a little bit bigger. Masvidal also used to weigh a lot more. Um, Masvidal's on a two-fight win streak. Uh, he's... You know, he has a lot of split decision losses that you could argue one way or the other. But it's it's also really hard to judge those past two wins. Uh, he fought Ross Pearson. Pearson took the fight on short notice. And Pearson isn't even remotely close to being a welterweight. He's a lightweight who's fought at featherweight before. So him against Masvidal was, I mean, it was just, it was kind of a nonsensical fight fight that Pearson probably shouldn't have taken because it doesn't do anything good for him uh it doesn't and I, honestly I don't think it really did anything for Masvidal so it's hard to judge that win and then the win over Jake Ellenberger that's the one where Ellenberger got his toe caught in the cage and should should honestly just be considered a no contest but at the same time he looked really good against Ellenberger so this is tough. Uh, Cerrone usually does really well when he has fights with quick turnarounds, and he just fought recently, and this is a quick turnaround. He's in Denver. This is a fight that he wants. So all of that goes into Cerrone's favor. He's also angry in this fight, which also is sometimes a good thing. It wasn't a good thing against Nate Diaz, but uh, certainly better than when he fought Matt Brown. He went into the Matt Brown fight not angry at all, and I thought he looked terrible up until he got the knockout. And that's the thing, is I don't think that he's really a welterweight, and I think Masvidal, even though Masvidal used to be a lightweight also, I think he might be able to pepper and overwhelm Cerrone the way that, that Nate Diaz did, and I think he might hit hard in a way that Cerrone isn't going to like the way that Matt Brown did. Um, it's tough to go against Cerrone because of how good he has looked, but I, I'm actually going to go out on a limb and think that Masvidal wins this fight, which is crazy. But we'll see. It's going to be a really good fight. I mean, it's a good matchup. I would have loved to have seen this matchup at 155, but it's all right. We'll get it, if, we'll get it at 170. And then the main event is Valentina Shevchenko, who's 13-2, against Juliana Pena, who's 8-2. Shevchenko's two losses are to Amanda Nunez and Liz Carmouche. The Liz Carmouche loss is not good because she just got too tired, which is crazy. Tells me that Carmouche probably outgrappled her and exhausted her, which has kind of been her her downfall. I think Shevchenko is overhyped. Uh, the Kaufman fight was a fight that I've, I thought she had lost, but she won. Uh, she fought Nunez and people can argue that she actually beat Nunez, which is why she's in this fight now. Um, and Pena is on a four fight win streak. I don't think Pena is as good as she thinks she is. She thinks she's really, really good. I don't think her skills are all that crisp or technical. But she is aggressive. She will 
punch pretty hard, is willing to take some punches. She's done a pretty decent job out grappling her last few opponents. I don't think she's going to have any problem out grappling Shevchenko if Shevchenko's other performances are any indication. I mean, Pena really could just hold her down for five rounds. Uh, and it won't be like the greatest looking fight, but that is a possibility. But what I think is going to happen is I think Shevchenko is going to get crushed for the first round, round and a half, maybe two rounds, and then she's going to come back to life and win on the feet for the next three rounds and win a decision. Because that's kind of how Shevchenko fights. She's like a traditional tie fighter in that she starts really slow and then slowly becomes a world beater towards the end of the fight and when you have a five round fight instead of three rounds that works in Shevchenko's favor uh the grappling is going to be the biggest problem because I think Pena knows that that's where she should go it's a safe route to victory which secures her as number one contender and if Shevchenko starts slow, then Pena can establish that really early in the fight and and possibly just keep doing it. But I think we'll see that happen in the first round. I don't think Pena's going to get a finish in the first round, but if she was going to get one, that would be the time to do it. Just get her down and try to submit her. But I think Shevchenko will survive and will actually come back and... Uh, be able to pepper shots and keep distance and prevent takedowns towards the end of the fight when Pena is tired from taking her down and holding her down earlier in the fight and Shevchenko could get the decision and kill the Juliana Pena hype train and then we would have a Shevchenko Amanda Nunez rematch which is not as intriguing to me as Amanda Nunez versus the winner of Holly Holm and Jermaine Aronomy at 145. That is way more interesting. But then that if Shevchenko wins, that could set up Pena versus Ronda Rousey, which I think is a smart and logical fight for both people. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to it. You should look forward to it. We'll see what happens. I think there's Bellator on tonight, but... I don't know. I'm not going to look it up. So enjoy. Stay awesome.